Hey, it's Jeff and Jeremy from the Ultra Running Guys. And if you're here, you probably already know that we started this podcast to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. But what you may not know is that in addition to this podcast, we also host two live races in the Wilmington, North Carolina area that are designed to do the same. Yep. The first is the Hydra, which takes place on April 20th and has a 50K individual, a 50K relay, and a half marathon option. Whatever option you choose, we promise that slaying the Hydra will be unlike any race that you've ever experienced. And the second is the final countdown, which takes place on September 14th. And whether you've never run before or you're a hardcore ultra veteran, this race is designed to help you find your limits. And we will be there with you to help celebrate. All right, so mark your calendars, share with your friends, and visit us at our website, theultrarunningguys.com. Or check out the links in the show notes for more info. And with that, enjoy the episode. And remember, when in doubt, just show up. The course has a pretty strong record. Yeah. You know, you've seen the license plate display. Yeah. Which it seemed like a good idea when we didn't have 400 license plates. You know, the the first couple of years, it was really cool. And now we need a whole extra day to hang license plates. That's the Barclays trophy case. Those are people who have been crushed. And welcome back to the Ultra Running Guys. You got Jeremy Reynolds and Jeff Winchester of the Ultra Running Guys. And the reason that we're here is to help you take your next step in your ultra running journey. And if it's your first time joining us, thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate you more than you know. We love the review. If you're finding value, share with your friends, all that good stuff. And if you've been here before, you're already family and uh, we love you guys as well. So let's get right into it as we always do. Our guest tonight really needs no introduction. He's a legend in the sport and was recently inducted to the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame, probably best known for creating unique races that challenge runners to explore the extreme limits of their physical and mental capabilities. He has been referred to as an evil genius, as well as the Leonardo da Vinci of pain, and considering that much of the world has been introduced to him through the startling Netflix documentary spotlighting the Barclay Marathons, and later through the world-renowned Big's Backyard Ultra, it's not hard to understand why. But as often is the case with bigger-than-life personas, there's more to this man than meets the eye. So stick around to hear where he comes up with his crazy ideas, what it's been like to have a front-row seat to some of the most mind-boggling feats of endurance in history, and where he goes from here. And so with that, we welcome the legendary race director, Mr. Gary Cantrell, a.k.a. Lazarus Lake, Laz, welcome to the show. Hello, I appreciate y'all having me on here. Well, we're so excited to talk. Um, I've spent the last few years kind of chasing the backyard format. I actually had a chance to meet you briefly at Capitol in uh, 2022, which was a lot of fun. But before we get into some of kind of the race directing, some of the, the races and we have questions there, of course, we kind of want to know the man. Because I would imagine that as much information's out there about you, there's probably a lot of our audience that doesn't kind of know your origin story. And so we'll start with, with the very basic, right? So we introduced you, Gary Cantrell, but everybody listening here knows you as Laz, Lazarus Lake. Why do they call you Lazarus Lake? Because of uh, email. You know, I, I came to email late in my game. 
early in emails game. You started out with email at your work and your mail was a work email. You only sent email for work purposes. Your email name was your was either your title or your name or your title and your name. And then as email started being used, started getting personal email. So I made my own email account, a Hotmail email account, because it was in my price range. And when I filled it out, I started to put my name on there. And I thought, yeah, this whole email thing is kind of hey, a little, just a little suspicious. Of so I thought, I'll just make up a name and put it in there. And then if I send emails to someone who knows who I am, they'll know who it's from. And if someone snatches it out of the air, they won't know who it's from. And I just picked Lazarus Lake out of the sky. And you go along and, and the world changes in the first social media, the email list. And you had the ultra email list, which was really active with lots and lots of runners in it. And I just kind of left that name on there without thinking about it. And one day I go to a race and I realize most of the people there think my name is Lazarus Lake. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably good. It'd make it harder for him to track me down. <laughs> not, not anymore. And I was going to say, people definitely know the name now. And it's, I bet you. I bet you there are urban legends out there about how you got that name that do there not are. Yeah, that do not match email. Because in my research of you, I learned that I was told that the reason you were called Lazarus Lake was because it was very hard to wake you up, that it was like waking up the dead. And so you had this <laughs> biblical reference to your name being Laz from Lazarus Lake. And that, that's why everybody called you that because you sleep hard as a rock. Yeah, that was specifically during the Barkley, right? Just during the Barkley. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, usually at the Barkley, the first nap will come 48 to 55 hours into the race. Yeah. And it, then it, you get an hour to sleep. So, yeah, you try to really put quality sleep into that hour. Well, and so here's what's amazing to me is if you're in the world of ultra, you know you, you know your races. But I think most people picture you as the race director, right? But we know you also, you walked across the country in 2018. You do just an incredible amount of miles. And at one point in your life, you were a pretty avid runner. And so we want to kind of rewind again for anybody who's being introduced to you or to your kind of your origin story. How did running, and then we'll get into the ultra running piece, but how did running become such a big part of your life? Like, where did that come from for you personally? Uh, well, you, you know my background with Oklahoma football. And my family was really sports-oriented. And by high school, I had played some youth sports. They weren't as big as they are now. And we moved around frequently. But by high school, I, I wanted to make an athletic team. As a sophomore, I was five feet tall and weighed 70 pounds. Wow. Which, even wrestling, you're 20 pounds under the lowest weight limit. So... Pretty much my choices were running, track and cross country. So I ran because I couldn't play football. If I had had my dreams come true, I would have been the most vicious linebacker that ever played. <laughs> but <laughs> the only person who would get killed was me. 
<laughs> and then I wanted to be a great runner, but I wasn't fast. So you, you're you naturally you're a distance runner, you know, miler, two miler. I still wasn't fast, but I was always in shape and I could take a lot of punishment. So I thought you move up in distance and you'll do better. But all the people who moved up in distance had the same attributes. So it went on and on and on until it got all the way to ultras. And I wanted to run an ultra thinking my characteristics will be enough to be successful. And uh, there were no ultras closer than Miami or New York City. So I started the strolling gym and soon found out I really had a more of an aptitude for organizing events than I did competing in them. And so it's pretty fascinating to me that one, your kind of or introduction into ultras was not just running, but was also organizing because you wanted to run them. But I mean, strolling gym. So if I'm right, strolling gym came around in 79. Is that correct? It really started in 78 because that's when the work started. Okay. Uh, right. You're, you're a year into it when you hold your first race. Right. If people are out there wanting to organize an ultra and they're thinking, yeah, it's uh, two days after Christmas. Maybe we could have it the first week in January. <laughs> they're, they're screwing up. <laughs> well, we're going to talk to you about specifically kind of the, the race because I've got some questions about that to me. Again, all that's fascinating. But obviously, even so, Strolling Gym, I think it's known for hills. So you didn't start with... Let me ask this. Have you ever put on a race that people would consider quote unquote easy? Strolling Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so so for, for the listeners, give us a quick overview of Strolling Jim. Strolling Jim is, is kind of a tactician course. If you're going to race it, it's got a mix of easy hills and nasty hills and few places where there's long downhill grades that are at a gentle grade. And on the competitive end, people are trying to maneuver the, the race around to where the, the decisive points come on the terrain that they're best at. And you kind of have to use logic for pacing it. But it's, it's also a big first-timers race. And uh, it's a good place for someone to do a first ultra. It's only 40 miles. Give or take. Give or take. And, uh, yeah, that's right. I feel like a lot of your races are probably give or take. And that's, I mean, that's ultras in general. They're mainly take. <laughs> Can I circle back to something? Yeah. So I know we've kind of jumped into your race direct and everything, but one of the things we found fascinating about, um, about you and our research was your approach to running and ultra running itself. You know, you, like you said, you started off gradually increasing distance as you were getting more experience in it, but also trying to be more competitive, trying to find the right distance that you could be the most successful. Right. But, but throughout that entire process, you got to the point that you, you were starting to run like 30 to 35 mile runs, but somebody, a friend of yours told you that walking was okay. When I started running, you ran or you called for a ride. <laughs> You know, I see these people that can run 100 miles just flat out. I don't think I ever ran 50 miles completely. I could have gone between 40 and 50 before I absolutely got so stiff and sore. 
And so Tom Osler, back in the early 80s, wrote a book and said, if you mix in a small amount of walking, it keeps you from getting stiff, which was exactly what it did. It just it opened up a whole new world to go out and say, walk five minutes every hour. Mm-hmm. And then instead of running 30 miles and being absolutely dying by the end, I could run 30, 35 miles and feel good at, at the finish. Here's gradually changed that. I went from where I ran and walked occasionally to uh, keep loose to where that I was ultimately walking and running once in a while to keep loose. And then eventually the ability to run left altogether. And now I just walk. It's <laughs> actually harder than running mixed with walking. Can't do anything about getting stiff. Mm-mm. Yeah, it, it's hard to walk for a long period of time too. Um, but it's interesting that you say that you had this revolutionary moment, if you will, where where your friend told you that walking was okay. Because we you know we, before with the show we started telling you a little bit about the history of the podcast, where um, a lot of our listeners are new to the sport and everything. And I've been asked multiple times by runners, or even just by by people who just see me and know me that I do ultra running, they're like. So do you run the full hundred miles? Do you run? Like, how do you run for 50 miles? I'm like, I'm, man, I walk some, like there is a definite walking in and, and that's such a revealing thing for people who get into the sport. Like it's okay to walk. It's okay to, to come up with a plan to walk, to be intentional about it and to, to sprinkle in some running if need be. Right. And so, um, it's one of those things that, that I think is encouraging for a lot of people to get into the sport as well, to be okay with that. And so it was fascinating when we did our re- research of you to hear that you had your own moment like that, where it's like, Oh, I'll be okay if I walk and I can get further by doing it that way as well. Well, of course, when you say a friend, this was when I started running ultras, the big controversy was, or the big concern was ultra running is exploding in the late seventies. And they said, what happens when there's so many people running ultras that we don't all know each other? (laughs) And that's not in your area. That's from coast to coast border to border and a hell of a lot of the people overseas you literally knew everybody if there was someone you didn't know certainly your friends knew makes sense as to why everybody thought you were lazarus lake based off the email because everybody's recognizing the different emails because everybody's on the same chain i would imagine same distribution list right right (laughs) yeah yeah there's just when Ultra Running Magazine started in 1980, every time the issue came, you, they'd have every race that was run in the whole month and the list of all the finishers. And you'd look down it because you knew all those people and you would see what all, what all your friends would do. And the funny thing is, even before that and before the Internet at all, the word traveled so fast through the grapevine of runners that you always knew what was going on, what your friends were doing. But when you went, when you had the races, you went early, you stayed, you went to pre-race dinner and you ran the race, you stayed into the next day. I can remember strolling gyms when we were still sitting on the front porch of the hotel, drinking beer, watching people go to church on Sunday. <laughs> and, and you hated to leave because it would be several months before you saw another person who actually ran. 
it's connecting. It, it is. And that's what I was going to say is, you know, one of our favorite things about doing the podcast has been able to connect with people. And obviously social media, so many things have changed, right? And this ability to connect without having to do the travel, see, see people face to face. However, when we see pictures of, you know, quote unquote, our friends that we've connected with that half of them we've never met face to face and they're taking pictures together at a race. And then it's like, oh my gosh, I wish I was there because it just looks like a reunion. You know, it's like every race looks like a, re a reunion. So I can only imagine then when those were the opportunities, you didn't have mm -hmm. the social media to connect on a daily basis if you wanted to. Yeah, we didn't have to drive to Tennessee to interview um, last. That's right. That's right. We get to see him <laughs> through technology, which is incredible. Well, so, and, and, and so we, we do want to kind of move forward to some of the race directing. Um, however, I do, you know, it sounds like after that moment, maybe I would imagine both personally and race directing, it probably opened up this horizon of, oh, with walking and running, now the limit has just, you know, increased so dramatically in, in possibilities of what I can do and the things I can ask other people to do. One of my favorite stories when I was I was listening to the Davy Crockett episode that he just recently did for you for uh, History of Ultra Running was that your tradition was to run overnight on Christmas Eve, a hundred miles to get where you were going and then spend Christmas <laughs> Day, and and to me to go okay, and this is what I told Jeff. I said most of us will train and train and train for this event, this hundred mile or over crude, and there's stuff on the course and. You know, and I said, that's just the kind of running that was done back there is that you said, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run overnight and I'm going to spend the next day with my family. Me, I would be able to get out of bed. I'd be wrecked, at least based off my personal experience. So I'm fascinated. It wasn't, it wasn't really just Christmas. A lot of times it would be Easter or other holidays. Sandra's family lived about 80 miles away by the shortest route. And so you could leave the day before and run to her dad's house for Christmas or Easter or whatever. And then that morning, while the family was gathering in, they would drive in and say where they had seen me at. Oh, I saw him coming through Fairview. He was just across the interstate. <laughs> and then when you arrive, all they really expect you to do is to sit in a chair and drink a lot of iced tea. Laz, your wife must be very forgiving, very gracious, and very loving, because mine would kill me <laughs> if I chose to go see my in-laws that way. Um, she would be just like, why are you taking away from my time? But I went. <laughs> I mean, true. <laughs> That's true. I've said those words, too. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> Fortunately, my in-laws don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> That's right. That's one of those edit moments, right? You need me to pull that. We may need to edit. Too that. bad. Too bad. Um, <laughs> Just use one of those voice disguise things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jeremy Reynolds, Jeff Winchester, and this other guy that you randomly hear when he talks about Jeff's in-laws. Right. It's not him. <laughs> not Jeff. That's awesome. Um, all right. So, so we already talked about it. At some point, kind of, you made the shift at least uh, primarily to focus on directing and you've had several races that you put on. I think, I believe you still put on several. We'll talk about that kind of as we get out of this, but obviously you've got a reputation for unique formats. So where does that come from? How do you come up with kind of this inventive style? And I would guess that the majority of them are on the more difficult side, but where did the unique formats come from? Um, 
I've been asked that. I think it's more a matter of just the, the whole concept of that's the way we always did it, never stuck. I just put on races I would like to run. I don't think about what's been done before, but what you can do. And a lot of it, because of my lifelong involvement in sports and, and in coaching stuff, I, I've always been fascinated with the mental aspects of competition. Mm. A lot of these races are kind of centered towards exploring a different aspect of the person and for them to explore a different aspect of themselves. You got all the way from the Vol State the heart of the South, which is a step beyond that. Anyone can finish it. All you have to do is persevere. Mm -hmm. But there's going to be a lot of discomfort. There's going to be a lot of uncertainty. And you will spend much of the time not believing that you can do it. You have to be able to split your brain from something that it seems impossible, but you still don't quit. And if then to the Barclay, which people come to, and it real, they're really probably not going to make it. But they have to be ready to put everything on the line and to do this unbelievable amount of work and face these incredible challenges, knowing they're probably just going to be knocked up. Or the backyard, which is totally competition. It's me and you. We can both run that 4.1667 mile loop in under an hour, almost indefinitely, physically. But who wants it more? It's why Harvey won. Mm-hmm. He's got the mental aspect of competing and over his backyards because he didn't start out winning. I've, of course, gotten to talk with him and you get to talk with all these really good athletes and learn what's going on in their head. And see how he gradually pulled the pieces together where he's a frightening beast in a backyard because you can see him go through and he just take a horrible beating. And he's still laughing and joking and walking to the line ready to go again. There were several people that you thought physically were just they're younger, they're stronger. And for the longest time, they also were sure. You know, it's just a matter of time till we kill Harvey. And there comes a point where they step to the line and they give that look and that look says, what's it going to take to kill this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, he just, he's not going to give up. Mm-mm. He's not, you know, um, I know we got a lot of questions on this area, but it's some, interesting. One of the things you said a few minutes ago, because we were, we've been looking at your races, the different ones you offer and we were trying to figure out like what their angle was for each of them. Like this one's about this and this one's about, you know, this category and stuff. One feels more physical, one's more mental, but you actually used a word that is the theme for all of them that I did not pick up on until you said it. And then I looked at them. I was like, that's right. You use this idea of uncertainty as the theme for all of your races is that each of them has some level of uncertainty for the participant, whether it's the extreme distance, whether it's the unknown of how long it's going to be, whether that's the location of how it's going to turn out or or what the course is even going to be like, there's always an element of uncertainty in each of those races, which I didn't pick up before when we were looking at them, but that's where you see it as the thread of how he's, how he's looking at them. The greatest challenge for every athlete is uncertainty. And then the races are like human experiments Mm -hmm. and seeing 
the Barclay being the ultimate race, nothing in the Barclay is ever certain. Mm -hmm. It is designed where that they don't know anything. They don't know the course. They don't know the starting time. An hour before the start, you can't really have packed all your stuff because you know you're going in the mountains for anywhere from 8 to 16 hours at a time. Is it going to be daylight? Is it going to be dark? What portion of what? You know, what do I need to pack? How do I need to prepare? So they don't even get to put together their game plan until right before they start. They're on the road and still putting the pieces together in their head. It takes a certain kind of a person to deal with that, especially in the sport of ultra running, which attracts planners. It it really does. We had this conversation this morning and and I said, it's the one thing that actually it terrifies me about. Like when I watch, I was like, gosh, why do people want to put themselves (laughs) through the, and that's exactly what it was, right? The unknown. Hey, give me a hard course. Let me study it and let me figure out if I can go do it. There's, there's yeah. not really much scary about that aside from it's not even, do I have what it takes, right? It's just, am I prepared enough? But what we're talking about here is way different and somebody's ability to be able to just kind of roll with that. You yeah. have to adapt on the fly. Like we're taught as ultra runners to adapt in the middle of a race and stuff, but this is adapting your planning from the outset, not when you get hit in the face later on, but from the outset you adapt. Right, because the whole goal is to show up to get hit in the face over and over. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Um, and, and so I will say, though, that there is a nuance, right? And I've heard you say, and, and I may not get it exactly right, and that's probably specifically for the Barkley, but again, I would think that it goes to a lot of races, is that, hey, it's easy to create an impossible race. It's easy to create a race where everybody can finish, but it's difficult to get just outside of impossible, mm-hmm. right? And I would think that applies to the Barkley. However, even some of your other races, I would think that there is, it's not just a thought of, oh, that would be fun. Let's do it. But it's okay. <laughs> now I start to fine tune. Now I'm thinking about these little details. And let me ask it this way. Is there a specific goal? And maybe it's race dependent, but is there a specific goal that you have in mind when you, you know, come up with this new idea? What are you hoping to get out of it when you launch a race? Yeah, you, you do have a, uh, a purpose in mind or a, a particular aspect of the competition in a way the, the different races have a lot in common with the different drills and structures that you do in practice with a basketball team where that you're you, you set up things uh, with the kids in basketball we we would set up contests that they can't win because you need to learn how to play hard through that because there's always going to be points where you don't think you can win. You have to learn how to, to let that be something that drives you, not something that stops you. Uh, the Barkley Fall Classic is a fun race because it's a taste of the Barkley. But we're setting up a different course every year so that the, that it's something new, unexpected. You have the different hills and the different trails, and they all have their different attributes, and you string them together in different ways so that, you know, maybe the race starts out easy and they can put distance in the bank. And then it's a series of punches to the guts, or it comes out right off the bat and just smashes them in the face and puts them in a big hole. And they're they're fighting to get back. And we say, well, we want about a 30% finish. 
the taste of barbecue. We want finishers. We don't want no finishers, but everyone who finishes, they they get their little Croix de Bark uh, medal, and it's like this thing means something. <laughs> I didn't just walk out there and they nurtured me along until I reached the finish and said, "Oh, here's a huge award." It's like I had to take that. And we put in a decision point where now you'll have some guys who are so good that, that there's not a decision to make. But the bulk of the people who are going to finish come in at a relatively short time period around this cutoff. Their choice is you can turn this way. And seven tenths of a mile down a flat easy road is the finish line and you call it a marathon finish. And until someone takes that choice, say you can be the winner. Ultra sign up will give you a 100 rating. <laughs> You'll raise your ultra sign up score, or you can turn this way, head back up into the mountains, wade through another river, and maybe finish, maybe not. And if you <laughs> don't finish, it doesn't drop down to a marathon. It's a DNF. You have to put everything on the line. And people relish that challenge. Some of them don't. Some of them, you know, eventually somebody says, I can win the marathon. Not realizing, (laughs) of course, that when you win the marathon, all the barkers think, (laughs) (laughs) you won the marathon. (laughs) It's the fun run of the um, Barclays. You know, the fun run is a cruelty. (laughs) Without the fun run, there would be more than 17 finishers of the 100. But it comes at a point in the race where you're so beat up and people, by the time they get through the third loop, they're cut, they're limping, they're broken, they're hurt, they're sleep deprived. And you say, well, you've got to finish. It was actually when you were talking about the fall classic in that point. And I was like, gosh, what a genius move to make it more difficult mentally because it's almost like hey i'm helping you out by giving you this option oh it is slightly twisted you can see it on his face he laughs inside of himself he's like i'm going to give them an out and laugh at them right (laughs) but but big picture is it's really and 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 i mean i would say both races you know there's probably pride to be taken in making it to that point in both races sure but then you have the torture of going but what if Mm-hmm. What if I yeah. would have made the other choice? Uncertainty. Right? Yeah. Oh, always. They get a set of dog tags for finishing the marathon and the Croix to bark for finishing the Croix. And people go home and hang their dog tags on their mirror so that they'll see it every day before they go train. Yeah. Because <laughs> the course is also divide. You know, you talk about the long walks, you have places where you can't run. Every place that you can run, you have to run to finish. Hmm. The places where then in most ultras, you would say, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to walk for a long ways till I get my legs back under me. But it's like, no, I've just climbed a monster hill. But if I don't run the other side, I won't finish. Yeah. Well, and that's that nuance, right? Of Obviously there's a skill that you have developed of, bring it inside the impossible, but knowing that, Hey, this is not, you know, this is, this is going to be very, very, very tough. It's a skill that you've clearly developed. Let, let's talk about quickly. Cause obviously the two big ones, so you've got several races, 
big races and i would think that people that have been in ultras for a long time or yeah, know them but a lot of people know you specifically for barkley and backyard so he's had a couple quick questions and we've heard the origin story uh you know you talked about how you came up with those mm-hmm. but i'm guessing that a lot of our audience is not right or, or maybe they haven't seen the documentary so barkley frozen head state park i mean when i hear i've never been out there but when i hear people talk about you know those woods and those mountains like I said, it almost sounds like a form of torture, right? To get out there and, and go through some of the things they go through. But how did that one specifically come about? What was the idea and genesis behind that? Uh, well, I was, a, I was always a road runner. I ran cross country in high school. I was always a big backcountry backpacker, I guess, much like running. There weren't as many people. And there were a lot of places where you get a a topographical map and figure out where you want to go and find somewhere you can park your vehicle and you backpack for several days carrying all the stuff you need. There's a difference between trails and paths. Mm. And when people say they're a trail runner, 99 times out of 100, what they mean is they're a path runner. Mm. A trail is you followed this old logging road that was used in the 1930s. And then you cut off on a deer track that that is the best route to get up on the ridge line and then follow the ridge line to a down ridge. Mm-hmm. And you string those things together. So people started doing trail runs. And I'm looking at the times and thinking, God, someone did a, a 605 for 50 miles on a trail. And then I ran a trail run. It's like, this is not a trail run. This is a path run. This is more like a park. Well, they are parks. Yeah. So it's it's a trail run. It requires a woodsman's eye. And there's a long explanation of how you get a woodsman eye. And it has to do with how vision works. And I don't know if you want to get into all that, but <laughs> no, I just know I would die. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't have a woodsman's there's, eye at all. I think I'm an okay woodsman. And but I see guys get out there and find their way in the fog and pouring rain in the dark. I don't know how they do it. There, there, are, there are people with mad skills in the woods. It, it's amazing. And I know that the documentary was it's almost 10 years old now, but you know, one of the things they talked about in there was, and, and I don't know if this has changed, but the record holder at the time for like the slowest, right? Two, technically two miles on course, for 32 hours so 16 hours per mile um so so there's good woodsmen and there's probably myself you know that would fall into the not so good woodsmen if we had to make our way through there so obviously the race is known and some people would argue that it is the toughest in the world so we had some statistics so there's only been out of a a thousand or over a thousand starts there's only been 21 finishes by 17 individuals. So you have a couple of people, I think a couple that have done twice and one individual that's done it three times. But there was more than 30 people that didn't didn't make it or only made it to the first book. They did not make it to book two. The book first book two. Did not make it to the first book. And so, you know, I would imagine it's not an easy race to get into and that, you know, there's a requirement, obviously I've never applied, but there's a requirement to at least so show some level of uh, resiliency and woodsmanship. You, yeah. <laughs> You've got the <laughs> athleticism, um, but it just goes to to show that how tough it is. So I do have a question for you. Can when you get in? 
No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I don't want in. That, I don't know. I don't think I, I would come like watch, take pictures, right. you know. But um, no, no. So, so the question, though, personally, because you said, I mean, I, obviously, it's probably great when somebody finishes, but when you're out there, who are you rooting for, the course or the runners? Well, you root for all the runners. I mean, it's our nature to root for underdogs. Yeah. Everyone in there is is a uh, really experienced individual who has got the background that there is in some way hope. The the math of the thing is the campground where the the venue where we set up we can can hold about forty people, but to do the course and not have an impact. We really only can handle so many loops. So when you're selecting the field, you select all good people, but only so many of the elite ones that really have a shot at five laps. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you select the equal or slightly greater number of more or less what you would call average people running on down the, the line. Now, what we're looking for is around 160 laps total of everybody from all the years of going out and examining the course afterwards. We do it in the spring right before the grow out so that if it's like a really wet year and you have lots of the skid marks and stuff in the mud within a week or so of the, of the race, all the greenery just goes right back over. It. We'd say if we did it in September, you'd have a winter of erosion. And so we, we said for that, go shoot for that number. And you have so many people that logically have a shot at, at five loops. Some of them, as it turns out, either psychologically or the, they don't have all the skill sets. And really, they're going to be lucky to get one. Yeah. And then some of the people that you peg that physically, logically, you, you would not rate them as having maybe the fun run as their highest potential. They're going to make a good run at getting five or maybe even finish it because they've got the combination. You have to have all the skill sets, mm-hmm. you know, the map reading, the, uh, the ability to adapt on the fly. You're going to have to solve problems when you're really tired and you're really hurt and you haven't slept and you have to make good decisions. You got to be confident finding your way in the woods. There's just all these things that go together. Plus being a hill climber like a goat. <laughs> got to be tough and at the end of the day. When someone finishes, I think everyone there, you feel elevated just because you saw it. Mm-hmm. As, as unimaginable as it sounds from here, when you've watched the, the beating slowly being applied and you've seen what everyone's gone through and you've seen the casualties and you, and you see them, you see these people leaving out on loop five and you think no race would ever allow this person to leave the starting line. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're sending them out for maybe 12 hours or the way that the timing works out on the loops, virtually without exception, every finisher has had to run the fifth loop faster than the fourth. It's not that they run an 80 split, they have to run an 80 split. Mm-hmm. Loop four just took them 16 hours and they've got 
uh, 13 hours and 10 minutes to get finished. Insane. They Men- have to mentally that's just got to be so overwhelming okay. but, but it just goes to show the the types of people that are continuing to push through in those odds i like um, i like actually when you asked the question about who you're rooting for the course or the runner <clears throat> he was very correct in saying that he roots for the person which is very nice of you however you said it's our nature to root for the underdog which means you believe <laughs> that the course is the favorite <laughs> uh, the course has a pretty strong record yeah. <laughs> you know, the, you've seen the license plate display, Yeah, which it seemed like a good idea when we didn't have 400 license plates. You know, the, the first couple of years, it was really cool. And now we need a whole extra day to hang license plates. That's the Barclays trophy case. All that array of license plates marks Barclay wins. Those are people who have been crushed. <laughs> And for those of you that have seen the documentary, you know what you're talking, we're talking about here. We could probably do, or I know we could do a full episode on Barkley, mm-hmm. but you can still find, I don't think it's on Netflix anymore, but you can still go Google the Barkley Marathon documentary. Also Gary Robbins, Gary Robbins, you know, the one out there about Gary Robbins that Ethan put together. I think it's where dreams go to die, something like that, um, which is a pretty heartbreaking video to watch. But anyway, it, I would say- the, the, two, the two really- the the Barkley, the race that eats its young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one captured the whole feel and spirit of it. And while you understood conceptually that it was hard, it doesn't get through people's heads. Where dreams go to die, when you see Gary break down and weep after the fourth loop. Yeah. That one captures just how damn hard it mm-hmm. really is. He's not a soft guy. Jeez, no. That guy is incredibly tough. And, and so it's worth everybody's time. Go check those out if you haven't already. And also, there's another, we mentioned Davy Crockett already once, but he's phenomenal for ultra running history. And he did a great kind of the origin story to Barkley. So I had a great time listening to that. So everybody's listening. If you want to learn about Barkley, go do that. But let's transition quick to the backyard because the so same question, I want to hear like, how did that idea come, ar- come around? Because it's easiest to talk about, right? 100 miles, 24 hours, you break it down. It's the 4.1667 miles per loop. However, when you start to get into the details and the nuance, like there's a lot of thought that went into what that really means and what that does to people. And you already referenced it. So tell us how that came about. And we have a couple of questions kind of about backyard and bigs. And well, the basic idea actually goes back to when I ran in high school. I was really durable. You do your interval workouts and stuff. And I would make my way up through the pack of runners, runners finishing each interval because I could just take punishment and punishment. And I got to thinking, if we ran four miles every hour until only one person was left, I could beat all these guys. Mm. And I... I don't know that that's true because I've seen how tough some people really are, but I wish that the backyard had been an option when I, when I was younger. So we came along and we moved out here on the farm in 2010. I built trails around the farm and we did just a regular time race, but you know, it's only 140 acres. You're really kind of in a compressed area. to have your standard race. You just need lots of space. So I was thinking of how how I could do it. And the idea from high school had been bouncing around in my head. 
And I thought, you know, I could string those trails together and make a, a, about a four-mile loop. And then you think about it and you, well, one, make it 4.1667 because why would you want to run 96 miles a day? Right. Make it a nice even hunt. Said if we, you know, you start every hour, you have to be in the starting corral and start every hour. Then it becomes something where just a moment of weakness and you're done. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't imagine how long people could actually go. And I don't know, we've found out yet exactly how far they can go. Well, so that's actually one of the questions that we had for you. Obviously, Harvey this year, 108 hours. He could have done 120, and that's why it ended at 108, because the assist realized that while they were fixing the switch from the trail to the road, the road loop is much easier. It was definitely going to go till the next morning, and I think that the assist said, I don't want to do another half day and then find out if I can beat him down. Right. Yeah. And, and mentally those transition points, like I said, I've, I've done a handful of them. I've done uh capital for the last three years, which capital of course, as you know, is like little bigs, right? I mean, when I looked at the yeah, roster, that's for, a good red, they have a uh, tough field. How far have you gotten a capital? Uh, so actually my first year there was my furthest and I did 32 hours. So 133. So that was the year that Chris Roberts, well, Chris Roberts took the assist and then came and I think gave Harvey the assist that year, which, you know, had set the world yeah. in like 84 hours. And, and so it's fascinating. So for everybody listening to Capital Backyard, mm-hmm. I, when I looked at the roster for this year for the 10, you know, U.S. starting at Biggs, I've lined up next to seven of them at Capital. And I was like, wow, you know, <laughs> that's pretty, that's pretty phenomenal. <laughs> um, I got to witness Jennifer Russo set the world record for the women this last year, which is, I mean, just incredible. But Bottom line is a few years ago, you know, I think we were in the sixties and now we've almost doubled that. Right. I mean, the, the growth has just been phenomenal. Go ahead. You must do two things. One is they solve problems. There is a lot of expertise out there now on how to manage this race. And the other one is we raise our concept of what's possible. Somebody's done 108. Now you know 120 can be done. And that's five days. And just beyond five days is the sixth day. I've thought for the last couple of years that the next person who does a 600-mile six day is going to do it in the backyard. And right behind them, there may come a flood because the backyard runners are setting multi-day running concepts just totally on their ear. Mm-hmm. So I guess that begs the question because it is the one format. And I've had this conversation. I think I even had with Harvey is, you know, if you're running a hundred miles and trying to do it faster, right. It, I mean, you, you might get up to a limit, but you kind of know the max. This one's the opposite, right? Yeah. Like, okay. Let's say we believe it can get to 10 days. Should it get to 10 days, right? Like at what point, (laughs) at at what point is it like, okay, hey, we've kind of proven that this can, and I've heard the arguments that to your point, if you do things just right, the science says 
you can probably almost go indefinitely. Like I'm sure there may be a limit out there somewhere. I but, think the the four point one six six seven really doesn't leave you enough leeway to go indefinitely. We will hit a limit out there somewhere. But I go with the six days because people have done six hundred miles in six days. Right. So you're you're merely changing the uh, you're changing the structure. You're changing the the way that it, the run is organized, but it's still an or, a run that's been done before. So I think in that six to seven day range, you'll hit the point where it'll be very rare that someone bumps the record up by an hour. I'm just going to um, point out something real quick. The two of you that have gone on this tangent of a backyard, right? Um, is <clears throat> It's fascinating to me. We were talking this morning as we were um, brainstorming some of the conversation that we wanted to, to talk to you about is we talk about distances for our runners. You know, we've talked about 50Ks, 50 milers, you know, 100 milers, 100Ks, all these different distance runs and stuff. And and we talk about bigs, backyard. And we when we talk about it, we almost neglect the fact that not only do you have a race that, that you have created, but you've created a format mm. that has spun off into so many other races. And you just jumped over to Capital like it was bigs. Like right, it was right. like it was Laz's race, and yet it's not. It's the format that he designed, and that's that's actually the legacy of what you created with the backyard format um, that has become so popular as well. And I, I think we become remiss to the idea that they're so all interconnected to you, which is I think it's just fascinating to think about for you. A lot of the backyard has been serendipitous. I anticipated the competitive end. What has made it popular, though, is that. The backyard is a race that you can run if you're a 10K runner, a marathoner, a ultra marathoner, a multi-day runner. I think we're really just scratching the surface of the lessons about pacing that come from it. Mm -hmm. Because the incredible number of people now that are doing 24-hour hundreds. A year ago, it was almost the same. Last year, there were almost... It was like one and three quarters times as many people that did 100 miles in 24 hours just in backyard races as all other races combined. Wow. And there's so many people that I know that people that, that have won races with big totals still haven't done 100 miles in 24 hours in a regular race. There, there are lessons in pacing, but digresses from... The social aspect of getting together once an hour. The backyard is an hourly party. Before the hour's up, they start accumulating. By the time that, that you blow the last whistle, everybody's talking and having a big time. <laughs> a 14-hour, 100-miler can run a few laps with a 22-hour, 100-miler because they're, they're talking. And what difference does it make? Yep, it's true. And, so, and one of my favorite things too, when you have the big, when you have bigs is we haven't mentioned it, but you're an incredible writer. And I always enjoy seeing your write-ups of the previous hour or, you know, who's looking in what condition and those types of things. That's always a lot of fun. Um, but I think you just touched on something really important. And actually when we had the conversation earlier, I mentioned, I said, you know, pretty much all of Laz's races, I don't know that I would put myself in, you know, obviously Barkley is very difficult. You have races where you don't know what's going on and then you drop them off 300 miles away and they got to get back, you know? And so some of these races yeah, are, like fun. <laughs> it does sound like fun, but 
I, but, but I, you know, I'm questioning myself there, but you know, some of those races, it's like, Hey, there's only a small percentage of people that are going to be prepared for that type of thing. The backyard, ironically, because of how extreme it has become for the top end is the perfect race for anybody at any level that wants to see where they're at or how far they can push themselves. And it's like, though it, it's, if I said, Oh, the, here's the one lace race that Laz has put together that if you just started running a month ago, it'd be like, yeah, sure. Jump in. Like, this is a great race for you to go out, have a good time and, and figure it out. Um, so I hope the whole audience recognizes that you may not win the heart of the right, backyard. And it's, it's almost a shame The the big toes are amazing to look at. But the backyard has more in common with golf. There's guys in golf that shoot, what, the 57s and the 56s and the ridiculous numbers. But the heart of golf is guys shooting over 100. And the heart of the backyard, the reason it's been so successful is, is like Aldown, where we went. There was 250 people there because they have a special setup with their venue where they can handle that many at one time. And there was maybe five or six who were there to win. Everyone was there to break their personal best. And, and there's a growing tradition now you hang a bell at the finish line. And you finish a loop and it's the furthest you've ever been, you ring the bell. There's only one winner, but there can be 200 wins. Yeah. The lady that managed the motel where we stayed ran two loops. She'd never gone over 10 kilometers before. She was on cloud nine our whole visit because she was so excited how far she went. And because it enforces logical pacing, people consistently say, you know, I was hoping for 10 and I got 15 and got 100K. I did 100K. Yeah, right. It's huge. And the, you be your own hero. That's kind of what the, the whole idea of the backyard is. We we actually have a race, and right when this comes out, we'll have, have just opened up registration. It's called the Final Countdown. It is a last man, but it's only a one point three mile loop, and we have where each loop, the, you know, you get a little bit less time on the clock, so it can't be a forever lasting because you'll end up timing out. But just like what you said, is we've got a PR bell that's out there, and we consistently see people that are ringing that bell, and it's a win all day long because mm -hmm. people got more out of themselves than they expected to when they showed up. And it's our favorite part of that day. Mm -hmm. So something very similar. I do have a question that we've been talking about the races of all the races that you've created. And maybe it's like kids and you can't pick one. He has to pick one. Do, do you have a favorite? You can only pick one. It's always the next one coming up. <laughs> Which is? Uh, I guess the Barkley is okay. the next thing happened. That's a good one to be a favorite. Yeah. 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 We're actually working on a virtual transcon that I think will be fun because I'm planning on celebrating being 70 by running old habits die hard. I say running, although the only time I run is if I have to get out of the way of a car, <laughs> <laughs> but from uh, Delaware to San Francisco. Wow. Because that's the kind of thing you should do when you're 70, right? So cool. I think last time you averaged, like, I was reading like 27 miles a day. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive for quote unquote running, right? So either you were getting out of the way of a lot of cars or, you know, yeah. 
Oh, you're really it turned out feet. to be a 14 hour a day grind. The first half, I didn't have a crew because the stuff is close together until you get uh, basically the Mississippi River. Mm. And then I, there was a couple of spots, north, northwestern Ohio. You need a crew there because there's like 60 miles with nothing. But then uh, I only averaged about 25 a day. And then I got really messed up and off my schedule. And I just had to put it hammer down and walk 14 hours every day and average 29 miles a day. I've got some issues with my legs. They're not ideal. The times and distances no longer mesh. So impressive though. So let me ask this. <laughs> of all the performances that you've seen, you've seen a lot. Which has impressed you the most? Again, it's impossible to say. I would say when I see a finish at the Barkley, it, it has a different kind of an impact because the totality of the self-destruction involved. You, you know how athletes like to say, I left it all on the field. I left it all on the floor. I left it all on the trail. I think it's on the documentary, the picture of Feggy at the end. Mm. That's what it looks like when you really left it all out there. And 1% yeah. of the people that are out there would even qualify to try. And 1% of them are going to make it. And all of us would like to think, uh, except apparently you guys, everyone would like to think that they're 1% of the 1%. No, no, don't get me wrong. I feel that way. I just know that I would get crushed. <laughs> um, so let's let's dig just a, a second on that. I, if you put yourself like in 2023, you had three finishers at the Barkley. And so, you, you know, for you, when you saw those people come across the line, what what is that feeling like for you then when you see them finish? you feel like you've been elevated just by being there. I mm. mean, it's just, it's hard to describe all the excitement and all the drama and all the, you know, the great come from behind wins in football. When you thought you were defeated, when it was fourth down and 10 from your two yard line and you were down by 13 points with two minutes left and you win. Yeah. And it's like that feeling. Yeah. Does that motivate you with them for the next year? I just stay motivated. <laughs> <laughs> that brings up, we have a question on here. And so I'm going to jump right to it is, I mean, in the documentary, they talked about it, it was a dollar 60, right. For the runners to apply. I've heard other races where you charged a quarter types of things. So clearly, you know, there's a part of you that, that just does this because you enjoy doing it. What do you get from all this and, and you actually said in one of the davy things you know you said the reward is so great what is your reward what do you get from all this all of, all of the things the association with athletes being able to see these great performances seeing the look on people's face the vol state the heart of the south for 10 days they've wanted nothing more than for this to be over and then they climb that last mountain and find themselves being sad that it's mm -hmm. almost done. And when they get to the end, their amazement with themselves. If someone will say, well, you've seen all the great runners for the past 50 years. And I'm just running my first 50 miler. That's more exciting than many of the things they've done because mm -hmm. 
it's new because you're growing and building these new experiences in yourself. The new runners are where you get your energy. It's really fun. Yeah. It's a great I, reward. I admire the fondness that you have for the runners that, that run your events. That's that's really cool. I appreciate but, you saying you know, that. I hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I may have been speaking as you said Many it. Yes, have, you said you hurt them. Have them fail. We talk about that a lot at the Barkley because there's guys I've seen come that were worthy and had the chance and pieces never all fell into place and then they got too old and you know there's not a chance they're going to make it and you see gary robbins failing twice on the fifth loop and finally having to i think realistically say i can't devote that kind of time i have a family right. i can't keep doing it and there's a lot of heartbreak there's a lot of heartbreak in sports but you can't have that level of joy without the heartbreak. Yeah, it's the two extremes. You can't have one without the other. That's true. You need to taste the failure in your mouth. You can, you can taste it. You can smell it. It's right there. We need to change our races and break people. Break people. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a lot of conversations, too, about even identity pass fail, right? I think there's a lot of times people are afraid to take on some of these challenges because what if I don't make it? What if I, you know, what if I do DNF these different things? And so we've had conversations about it can be dangerous to tie your identity to it, or it's really the learning experience, however you want to put it, but you had a quote and I want to know, I don't know how long ago this was from, but we see your humor kind of throughout your, you know, the things that you do, the races, the way you roll things out, but here's the quote. What is called for is our keeping in mind how unimportant ultra marathoning actually is. At best, it is a bizarre hobby, and at worst, it is a vice. Does that still stand? Do you still find that true? And kind of what does it mean to you? That still stands. Of course, in the greater scheme of things, very few of us are going to do anything that's actually important. You have to, on the one hand, not ever accept failure. But you have to embrace it. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm sitting here talking to you and we you talked about how I got here at the beginning. If you think about it, I am here because I had an endless series of failures. Mm -hmm. If I had just had my dream come true and been the greatest, meanest linebacker who ever played, where the Ray Nisky would quiver in his shoes at the sight of me. And when would my career have been over? If I had moved up to the marathon and won in the Olympics, when would that have been? Like 1972? <laughs> I would have, I would have been gone for 50 something years. And That's right. Now here I am. I'm 70. I'm having the most fun I ever had, doing still something I love. Because I every time you fail, you're, you're like the little car. They give you a car. We used to have them. I don't know if y'all had them. Yeah. get it going and let it go it takes off and when it hits a wall it backs up and shoots off in a different direction and that's how you live life you go full speed if you hit a wall you back up and take a different direction it's amazing i hope everybody listen i mean for me actually probably the most powerful statement of what you said is 
you know, essentially most of us were really not going to do in the big scheme, anything that important anyway. So I think sometimes just to be able to release the pressure and like you said, balance it with, Hey, don't be easy on yourself, demand a lot of yourself, <laughs> but at the same time, don't take yourself so seriously. Don't take it so seriously. Go do incredible things and enjoy the people and, you know, find joy in the process. So it's, basically I need to sign up for Barkley. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We'll see you there. You've already got frost in your boots. So you don't <laughs> have to hear that part. Listen, I don't think I could find the yellow gate from the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, I know we're actually past the time we told Ooh. you we were going to keep you. We do have um, a quick session we want to do with you. But as we wrap up, because this is a real question, you know, that we were talking about these races. I mean, the backyard we talked about kind of legacy, right? It, 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 the format is out there. It's worldwide. But you are Barkley, at least from the outside looking in, right? You just mentioned you're going to be celebrating 70. You're going to be walking across the country. What happens when Laz decides to, you know, ride on into the sunset? <laughs> Do the races go with you or have you thought about that? Is there is there a plan to do the handoff kind of what I've been that? transitioning the the Barkley to Carl Laniac for several years this year I plan to not even stay up the whole time because it's only a couple of weeks after that I'm gonna be starting my transcon because there's mountain passes I've got to get across before the snow in the west yep. I respect the- that a lot I respect that you have a plan for that already because they're these are legendary races you know and it's really cool to hear that and it's been a slow process. It's there's a long transition of stuff from the days when me and Rod Dog would go out and put out the Barkley books in a in a weekend. One day we do the high books, and the other day we do the low books. And while we're at it, we would explore different hills and routes and trails to to build a catalog of pieces to use in the future. And then it got to the point where we would do the high books one day and the low books another day. And then we'd come back and get the books we didn't quite finish on another week. And then it was two weeks and it was three. And then the, it got down to a point where I'd start at sunup and be lucky to get out before dark and put out one book. And then we started weeding in, you know, bringing in the, the younger younger generation. Last year, I, I don't think I did in, it was the first year I didn't put out any of the books. And this year, Carl's planning the whole thing. That's so great to hear. And then we spent a lot of time talking about the course layout and mm. figuring out how long di- different things are going to take to make it all work. Shooting for 1% really is a trick. Yeah. That's where the genius comes in. That's it. That you stand for. And so, experience. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. It, yeah. Genius is just a lot of experience. It is. People think I'm getting smarter too. I'm like, no, I'm just getting older. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to take a moment for our audience. Um, I really hope that you were able to learn something new, get some great information because I've had personally had so much fun on this. And we talked about a few, obviously, of the big races, but a couple of the things maybe you have not, so I'm going to list these off. Go research them. They are fascinating. So you got the last annual heart of the South Road Race. Pure fun. <laughs> Essentially get dropped off 
three to 350 miles away in a van, right? You got to make your way back. You got 10 days. We load them on tour buses, drive them 350 miles away. They have no idea where they're going. They, and then their car is on top of a mountain in North Georgia and sitting in a cornfield and they have 10 days to get there. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So start planning. Check that out if you're looking for a good time. Uh, we mentioned Ball State 500K. There's the Bar- Barkley Fall Classic, which we did discuss. Race for the Ages. That was another one I didn't know was out there that has a, a really fun format. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening, go Google Race for the Ages. It's fantastic. If you want to run with about 40 people that are between 70 and 100 years old, that's the place to be. Yeah. And and I won't uh, I won't take the time to explain the format, but go check it out, and then the name will absolutely make sense. Oh, yeah. Race for the Ages. It's uh it's it's another one of those just kind of genius, unique formats that everybody should know about. And then of course the Strolling Gym Forty um, that's been around for a long, long time. So go check those out. But look, we just hope you got the value. As we said in the beginning, um, if if you are finding the value, share with your friends. It's how we grow. We really appreciate it. But Laz, man, this has just been such a pleasure. And congratulations. I don't think we said it. Congratulations on, you know, the the Hall of Fame induction. And just thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us tonight. It was an enjoyable way to spend the afternoon. We appreciate you. I know I've got at least one of you convinced to run the bar. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Actually, <laughs> you need to come and run. If you've got frost in your beard, you should come and run the Arfta the race for the ages because for one hour you will be the youngest and fastest guy on the thing on the track that has never happened in my life <laughs> that is in the next hour the goddamn kids come out there and ruin it all <laughs> <laughs> no my goal is to eventually try out and come out to the fall classic at some point once i get my september's um opened up a little bit better they're always booked with something right now but once they do i plan to, to try and come out to the fall classic and not opt out yeah, we've we've laid out a sweet course this year. I think people are going to have a really good time. <laughs> he says as he likes. <laughs> You're going to have a great time for the 33 percent that finish. <laughs> I love it. Well, look, thank you again. Uh, we are going to keep you around for just a few minutes if you've got the time. But for everybody else, uh, we appreciate you. We will talk soon. And cut, cut. Let me grab my soda here. I just did my miles. I'm trying to rehydrate. Sounds Ah, good. Rehydrate. There's a fun way that athletes get along with each other and and, and relate to each other. I'm uh, much more comfortable in a locker room than in a a, uh, cocktail party. So you keep the same conch shell for each year? I've had it since 1983. Wow. That's amazing. So does it, does it have like a special storage spot? A case. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's a beat up cardboard box. <laughs> it, it's a little bitty box that it fits in and has some packing materials to keep it from getting broke. Chickity check, check. The drink does not go on the same table with any of the computer equipment. Smart man. Smart man. Do you have seven minutes? I, I got seven minutes. Okay. I think we can do this. Then I'll need another cigarette. Well, the, the, the new ultra runners are the most fun because it's, it's all new to them and they're doing stuff for the first time.
Yeah. yeah absolutely. And they haven't beaten their bodies to death. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Laz, thank you so much for the time. Oh my gosh. This has been so much fun. Go ahead. Make a great podcast. What ultra runners think about football. See? <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Thank you so much. We recognize the fact that you are probably just hanging on just for a couple more minutes as you're finishing up your run. But really, we do want to give you a huge thank you for the constant support that you've shown us. We hear you and we feel you. And the best way for us to continue to grow is for you to share us with your friends. Tell them what you put in your ears when you're out there on a long run. Hit the like button, leave us a comment, um, leave a review, and give us some direct feedback on what you like about the show and also what you don't like. We're here to improve and do it for you. And it really means the world. And listen, if you would like to support financially, you can connect with us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the ultra running guys, or you can use the support link in the show notes. Any and all support goes directly back into growing the show and helping us get better at what we love to do, which is to serve all of you. And with that, finish up that run, get cleaned up, and just show up clean clean